Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun. On three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? They don't need us to kick them around the place. You could say it so much. The police in riot gear with trunks. I am ashamed to call myself a the European. The of Guaido. Elected gobshite is an absolute embarrassment. Now, you did use the word gobshite, so uh, I would re- reprimand you over that. Okay, welcome back. This is a special episode this week of I Foresee Trouble with Daly and Wallace. Um, usually we're on our, our whistle stop tour through Europe and we're stopping in each country um, for our little review of the week. Uh, but this week we're not in Europe at all. We're in the Middle East. We're in Iraq um, with our episodes. So um, Mick and Claire, you were recently in Iraq um, during a green week. You were making use of one of these weeks in the parliament where there's no official meetings. Uh, it's a week for civil engagement, basically. Um, what were you doing in Iraq? Um, tell us a bit about that trip. Well, um, what were we doing there? Well, first of all, I suppose um, I, I suppose I should say that I, I was appointed uh, what's called the rapporteur for Iraq, for the parliament for the five-year term. Um what would your definition of a rapporteur be? Yeah, it's kind of like a fancy word for a main negotiator, the lead per, uh, person to be in charge of a report or something. So, yeah. So, yeah. Um, when I got the gig, um, obviously I was bursting to go to Iraq, and uh, that's nearly a year ago, right? Yeah. It was last June, I think, I got the, that, that I was appointed. Uh, but um, my the first thing I did was I. I asked to meet everyone working for the, the various EU institutions if I could meet them and speak to them about what they were doing in Iraq in order to look at what I could do uh, in order to fulfill my responsibilities as the rapporteur. So I met them all. Uh, I, met, I had four different meetings with different people involved with Iraq. So then I, was, I discovered that... Um, to go officially to Iraq um, as the rapporteur, I could only go um, under the umbrella of the EU institutions, mainly uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. And that they would actually dictate the nature of the trip, who we'd meet, what we'd do. You'd and go with the big entourage do. of civil servants. Yeah, uh, so it, it'd be a bit of a, a fanfare, uh, but very much controlled, and um, I wouldn't have much freedom. Very formal, probably. Yeah, and I'm not really mad into formal myself. <laughs> but uh, so um, we decided we'd go unofficially in order to, because we can go anywhere we like, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, so we I didn't go as the rapporteur, and uh, I made it very plain to anyone that asked that hmm. uh, that we, we were going we on our own bat. it parliament. wasn't an of, it wasn't an official trip um we are MEPs we weren't representing the institutions of the European Parliament but because we're MEPs we are obliged under our uh, remit to represent the 460 million plus people uh, of Europe so uh, wherever we go uh, we would say that we do that but we we wouldn't be going representing uh, the um, any of the official institutions of the European Union. Uh, so um, 
anyway, we decided to go, and um, it was a, we were a long time organising this, and uh, we had some amazing meetings, and it was uh, an incredible experience. We were there for a week, and it was <coughs> amazing. It's, it was kind of overwhelming the whole trip, and even now, when you go to these places and you come back, you spend so much time absorbing and distilling the information that you got that it does take some time to fully account for it. But I suppose the first thing for me, and it happened, this is our second trip to Iraq. We were in Iraq when we were in the Irish Parliament. And one of the striking things, I think, for an Irish person, given the scale of the anti-war movement in uh, against the... Um, American intervention and the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. We had at that time some of the biggest mobilizations of activists in Ireland, 100,000 people on the streets against that war. It was the defining political event for so many people who are in their 30s now and yeah. their, their 40s, I suppose. And I suppose when you go there, you'd be expecting everybody to be kind of, you know, totally anti-American, be just talking about the legacy of that. And they actually aren't. I suppose that's the first kind of thing mm. uh, on that. They've kind of moved on from that. So we met a lot of people who were very happy that Saddam Hussein was gone. Uh, they talked about the scale of the uh, repression that was carried out when he was in power. Mind you, he was put there by the Americans in the first place. We should uh, remind ourselves of that and supported by uh, many Europeans. But the occupation by the US that followed and the legacy of that has caused huge destruction in Iraq. But I suppose one of the things on their mind now is the ongoing fight against terrorism. And we discussed that a lot, that that's probably fresher in their memory, uh, these are, we should remind ourselves, the people who fought ISIS. ISIS had occupied a third of Iraq only seven years ago, uh, and now they've basically ridded themselves of it. So that whole battle was striking, wasn't it? I mean, it was, yeah. And um, I suppose just going back to that time in 2003, I mean, obviously the Americans uh, invaded Iraq first in uh, 1991 with, with the first uh, George Bush and uh, people will remember the draconian sanctions that followed that against the people of Iraq. And uh, I'll always remember Madeleine Albright, who was the Secretary of State for America in 1998, when it, uh, in an interview it was put to her, a half a million children have died because of the impact of the sanctions in Iraq. Do you not think that that's a very uh, big price to pay for you to control the price of oil in the region? And she says, yes, it's a big price, but it was worth it. Mm. I mean, we're talking a half mm. a million children that had died on account of the sanctions. That was 1998. And then, of course, as Claire was outlining, the invasion of her second invasion then was in 03. And... Uh, the majority of the Iraqi people would have been uh, glad to see the end of Saddam Hussein. There had been a lot of resistance to him within the country already. And as a, a couple of the people that we met put it to us, we were trying to get rid of them, get rid of him. We hadn't uh, got there yet when the Americans invaded. They got rid of them, rid of him. And we were glad that he was gone. But then the American invasion turned into an occupation. And he says, so then we took up arms against mm -hmm. them. And uh, that battle went on for a long time. Um, and that's been well documented. Um, and in relation to ISIS that Claire mentioned, um, the ISIS came on the scene in 2014. And when they did, 
Iraq was under serious pressure to deal with them. ISIS were really uh, formidable and they were being financed uh, by the Gulf states and still are today, mind you. We were uh, reliably informed. Uh, Qatar, UAE, Saudi and Turkey are still uh, arming elements of ISIS, different groups of them, uh, which may seem mad to people at home. Uh, But in 2014, when Iraq was under pressure trying to deal with them, they asked Obama for help, and he said no. Uh, He said uh, that they didn't want to get involved. Uh, Really, the truth of it was that Obama was actually happy enough for ISIS to help destabilize Syria at the time, uh, because America, uh, along with European support, were engaged in a, re- a regime change operation in Syria, trying to get rid of Assad, and they have, which has led to the, uh, the death of several hundred thousand people and the displacement of several million. Uh, but then, uh, in 2014, the Iranians offered their help, and that's how what's called the Popular Mobilization Forces came. From came about. These were uh, militias that were set up to fight ISIS and initially uh, very much with Iranian support. And uh, Soleimani, who was uh, assassinated by the Americans last year, uh, was one of the main leaders of that. And the Iraqi version of him was Al-Mahandez, who was killed with Soleimani in that uh, American uh, attack that night. Um, But um, eventually, the Americans got involved in in, a, in some way. It was pointed out to us uh, by a number of the, of the people that we had meetings with that the Europeans were absent. Now, the Europeans were very worried about uh, about terrorists coming to Europe, but yet they they were not to be seen at where uh, when they were. Uh, required to deal with ISIS at the source uh, in Iraq in that time or in Syria. And in actual fact, unfortunately, the Europeans have actually helped to arm and support some of the terrorist organizations that have operated in, in Syria as well, uh, which uh, is a story that is not told by the mainstream media at home. Um, but uh, as Claire said, the fight against the terrorists is not finished. And it is a massive issue for Iraq today. Um, They want, as people will probably remember last year, the Iraqi parliament voted for the American troops to get out of the country, for the occupation to end. They also called for Turkey to get out of the country and their occupation to end. Both are still in place and that's a huge bone of contention. Iraq wants its sovereignty back. And it cannot have its sovereignty while it's been occupied by the Americans and by Turkey. Um, so it's it's an ongoing thing. But having said that, um, it was amazing, the atmosphere in the place. And as Claire said, they don't actually see themselves as being anti-American or anti-anybody. They're an incredibly friendly people. Mm. And they just want their lives back and they want their sovereignty back. Mm. They want Iraq to be an independent state. I, no, I mean, one of the things that struck me, and it's the point you're making about ISIS, and we should register for people as well, where did ISIS come from? And ISIS actually came from the original Iraq war because what you had was Saddam Hussein was a dictator and we were reminded on our visit by so many people that we met who 
whole sections of their family had been executed by Saddam Hussein. He was a ruthless, ruthless dictator. He was a Sunni, which is a minority in Iraq, and he ruled with Sunnis, but they were a minority and they ruled with an iron fist. When Saddam Hussein was overthrown, a lot of the Sunnis and those who participated and benefited from his regime, who were in the army, were put in prison. And a lot of them became radicalised to Wahhabism. In they were struck of everything. Everything was taken from them, and they morphed a lot of them into ISIS. Out of that, so there's a direct link to the origins of ISIS with the original invasion of Iraq by the Americans. And and I should just just to add that places like Abu Ghraib, prison mm. where mm. the Americans tortured these same prisoners. Uh, they were the breeding ground for ISIS. Absolutely. And the persecution by America on those states, on on uh, whole countries, on targeting people, bred the ground, that hatred that, that became ISIS, and which is a terror. And anybody who follows any of the proceedings in the European Parliament to see how much the focus is on, on terrorism. So one of the things that a lot of people stressed with us was the common... Um, I suppose, quests that or interests that the people of Europe have, the shared history between Iraq and uh, Europe. They were occupied before by Britain, by France. Um, but there was that crossover with Europe uh, a lot of the time as well. And I think, um, I suppose, one of the points they were trying to register us that we have a shared interest in fighting terrorism. But for us, like the irony of the debate here, these are the people who did the heavy lifting. I mean, we went, we met a whole number of politicians, religious leaders, and as Mick said, the popular mobilization forces, Hashtag Shabi as they're called. We were in their camps. We met their representatives. And these are people who answered the call uh, of their religious leaders to fight terrorism. Many of them sacrificed with their lives, but they're actually part of the Iraqi army now. So people in the West uh, and the EU say these are a terrorist organisation. They're not terrorist organisations. They're organisations which have been through um, their uh, human rights training under the Geneva Convention in terms of how to deal with um, civilians in conflict, for example. They work closely with the Iraqi army. They've been dealing with the COVID fallout, for example. They've been rebuilding schools in areas. This isn't the type of stuff that a terrorist organisation does, you know, and the people are in terms you know, people are very supportive of them. They really, the, the government has paid for their wages in the recent budget, which was passed when we were there, or at least parts of it. Yeah, and one of the stones that the West throws at Hashtashabi is the fact that they are Iranian-supported yeah. militias. <laughs> now, in actual fact, uh, Iran played a huge part in the formation of Hashtashabi. Um, but Hashtashabi today uh, are... They went to great lengths to tell us that they are now incorporated under the uh, Iraqi army. They work for the Iraqi government. They are under their orders. And while uh, they have um, great respect for the help that Iran gave them, mm -hmm. they want to be independent of Iran. Are they still giving help, Iran, now? Uh, would they be still giving them help? Uh, not in the same manner as before. Um but uh, there would be ongoing would, would, cooperation. They, they would, they, yeah, there absolutely. Is, there would. There, there'd mm. still be links between them, right? Um, but the um, the Iraqis uh, in uh, Ashtashabi um, were going to great lengths to say that, listen, 
they are fighting now for Iraqi sovereignty, Iraqi independence. And that means independence of everybody. And they also want to be independent of Iran. But uh, they appreciate no end that Iran were there for them when ISIS were at their door mm. and Europe and America well, refused to help. And, ga- and the gas thing is, it's like they're, they're very appreciative for the efforts of Iran. Um, but they would also be very happy for the EU to come in and help and have been saying, we want to work with the EU. The EU has people here. They're more naturally close to us in terms of historically or whatever. Why aren't they delivering any help? Why aren't their business uh, deals coming forward? Why aren't they helping with, you know, military training and security and so on? Why aren't they uh, dealing with cultural exchanges? Iraq has an incredible uh, history of archaeology, the earliest civilizations. It was a place that everybody passed through at various times. We had the privilege of visiting the ancient city of Babylon, for example. Unbelievable archaeological heritage. And there's no work being done on that. Mm. They are desperate. And if anybody is listening who's from an academic institution or archaeological students who'd like to get involved and do exchanges with Iraq, they're mad keen for that to happen. We met the mayor of Najaf, for example, uh, the holy city of Najaf, which the Pope was in uh, recently. And the mayor was very keen to say that he really wanted to see cultural exchanges with students going both ways. Uh, There was a library that we were involved in with uh, Najaf, which had collected rare books, who would love to see European expertise in helping them digitalise their books and so on. So they're really happy to see cultural exchanges. The Prime Minister, when we were there, was in Saudi Arabia. Arabia. They want to be friendly with Saudi Arabia. They'd be happy for the Americans to come in for business, but they want them out militarily. And we should maybe talk about that as well, because that came up a lot, actually, mm. about the but Americans. How, want how to leave. isolated do you think Iraq is nowadays for Europeans, like to even to get into Iraq? to do these kind of things, like you're saying, like people would see that it's not That's easy, one of the right? things they were given out about, that a lot of the airlines that used to regularly travel in don't now travel. Now, obviously, COVID, you know, a lot of airlines aren't moving. Turkish airlines fly in there. They have Iraqi airways themselves. But there aren't enough direct flights from Europe, for example, in there. There's none. Mm. No direct flights from no, Europe in no, there. No, but there is flights from Istanbul. Yeah. I, I mean, to get to Iraq, you really... Most of the flights... Uh, oh, it's very easy. You, it's you very near. Like boat. It's only five hours. That's not hours. really a, yeah. a problem. In fact, uh, they were expressing their disappointment at the lack of engagement from mm. the EU and uh, the, the, the lack of contact with EU officials that are actually assigned to Iraq in Brussels uh, who are not engaging with them. Mm. And it goes back to the fact that unfortunately the EU, which is uh, behaves like a puppet to the Americans, is almost waiting for permission from the Americans. The Americans don't want Europe to engage in a strong manner with Iraq at the moment and that's something that should change. Mm. Uh, there is no logic for uh, Europe not having a good relationship with Iraq and Iraq wants a good relationship with Europe and there's plenty of business people in Europe that would love to be doing business there and that make money and they would help uh, to rebuild infrastructure. I mean this was a country destroyed mm-hmm. by the Americans with the help of Europeans mm-hmm. and I mean it's going on a long time I mean the Iran-Iraq war started in 81 when the Americans even gave chemical gases and the Brits and the French gave chemicals to the, to Saddam Hussein 
to poison Iranians. That war went on from 81 mm, yeah. to 89. And then that was followed by the American invasion in 91, the sanctions then for the next 10 years, mm. and then the American invasion again in 03. I mean, my God. The <laughs> ISIS. It's <laughs> and to think that they hardly hold a grudge against them. Yeah. They yeah. just want them, they want their, their military forces out. They don't yeah. want to be occupied by them. But in actual fact, they just don't give out a lot about no. them anymore. It's like as if they're a new generation, as mm. if... Uh, a lot of them, a whole lot of people the young people of them weren't even it's going on so long yeah. Yeah. a lot of the young people they just want a chance to rebuild their mm. economy I mean like Mick's right the young people have been hugely let down I mean economically this is a country that's on its knees and it shouldn't be given the enormous natural resources that it has but it's been the victim of foreign interference now for so long that they do need help to to rebuild that so yeah. and, and I, young people are hugely like this huge unemployment the bill of the state bill most people are employed by the state they pay what the wage bill is about six seven million people on the books and i mean paying them yeah. is a yeah, huge that, amount they that, haven't that, got that the money to pay them economic you know challenges. they just but don't. just before we go off yeah. the subject of the terrorism and mm. all right uh we met a number of religious leaders as well, right? I mean, these are some of the most influential people in the country. Amazing guys, right? They were beautiful to listen to. They were really amazing. And they talked a lot as well about the importance of strong links with Christianity mm. and with the Sunnis and the Kurds and everyone else as well. And and they talked a lot about tolerance and all. Um, and they, went, they were at pains to say that, that Islam is not responsible for terrorist attacks. You have people like, some people who came from it, like the ISIS crowd, right? But they're not, it's not done in, uh, with the backing of any religious leaders. Mm. The religious leaders didn't call for violent acts to be carried out in Europe. That didn't happen. Mm. And yet, we see the French now reacting uh, to different terrorist attacks and they're clamping down on the human rights of Muslims in France. It is discriminatory what the French are doing to the Muslims in France. And these are, they're discriminating against people who uh, just happen to be Muslim. They're not the ones that are actually carrying out the terrorist attacks in France. Well, this is the lazy journalism like that defines so much of our societies that we have people sort of, as Mick says, denigrating Muslims. So they see people maybe wearing the the hijab or the burqa, and immediately they think, oh, ISIS, terrorists, when actually the heavy lifting against ISIS and the sacrifices made on the front line in the combat against them was done in the main by Muslims mm. in those countries. They're the ones who fought them back, like, you know. And, you know, it was a great, so important for them that the Pope came. And in many ways, the Pope had more backbone in sort of defying the Americans who didn't want his trip yeah. than, say, a lot of the European leaders who back off and just told the American line and won't treat Iraq as a kind of a sovereign country, like, you know. Yeah, and I mean, and the EU and the Americans have perfectly good relationships with Qatar, UAE, Saudi and Turkey mm. who actually are still arming ISIS. Yeah. And we have no problem sitting down and having tea and buns with those I thought one of people. the most powerful testimonies was a really serious politician. So we met a whole number of politicians, a uh, number of leaders of different parliamentary groups in the party, in the parliament and one of the men who was very high up as a civil leader in the Hashtashami but uh, also very, very serious politician had been a, a minister before I believe, but 
One of the points he made, he talked about an international conference that he was at in Oman about these uh, big camps of, of terrorists, effectively, who are on the borders or occup- in part of Iraq. We have them, obviously, in, in other parts of, of the Middle East as well, in, in Syria and the likes of Idlib and that, where all of these jihadi terrorists have basically been... I don't know what we call them, encamped there, you know, but there's, the world is sort of wondering, what are we going to do with all of these? And it's a topic that comes up in the European Parliament a lot on the Libe Committee. And you have a lot of the far right getting up and talking about these terrorists being bred in the camps, that you have children who are kind of like cutting the heads off their dolls and their mothers sort of inciting them into terrorist attacks. And in actual fact, the people in Iraq would say, yes, there is an enormous radicalisation and really sort of scary things going on in these camps. They're in Iraq, they're in Syria, but the world, the Western world has a responsibility for creating them. But in the European Parliament, people get up and say, well, they're not coming back here. They might have been some of our citizens, but they they breached the thing when they got involved in that. They're not coming back here. So they're leaving them there. So the two choices are either they're mass exterminated, which obviously would be uh, completely wrong, or there has to be a sitting down and deciding what to do with these people. And the man we met made the point that there was a the Iraqi government offered to go in if they got help from the West to assess all of these people, the women, the children who hadn't been involved in any crimes or whatever, who could be re-educated, who could be worked with, who could be reabsorbed back into their societies. And then the small element, the criminal, really people who had been involved in crimes could face the law in Iraq or if you know, the countries wanted to take them back and the West wouldn't, and the EU wouldn't deal with that. But they have to get to that space. Yeah. Yeah. And and what Iraq was saying was that we we could actually, if, if, we're, if we're financially supported yeah. by, the, by the EU or by the Americans or anybody else, we can actually deal with these terrorists who committed crimes in Iraq. They can't deal with people who committed terrorist acts in other countries. Mm. And so, for example, in Syria where there's been terrible terrorist activity and sadly, uh, in, many times uh, in, in, in the form of Al-Qaeda and Al-Nusra, they actually had support from the US and the EU. But people who could be a terrorist attacks in Syria could be tried in Syria. But the, the Syrian government would need support to do that. But at the moment, we the Europeans or the Americans won't even talk to to the Syrians, they'd rather bomb them and steal their oil and steal their wheat, which is actually happening. They're actually starving the Syrians now with sanctions. But these people are in camps. And you know what? The Iraqis said to us, mm-hmm. I said, what you don't realise, what you need to, 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 to grasp is that these people can easily escape from mm-hmm. these camps. And you know what? They might make their way to Europe. So this is a huge security issue for Europe Mm. because we don't want people coming to Europe and setting off bombs in Mm. in the various cities of Europe. And yet we're refusing to deal with the problem Mm. at source. Idlib, for example, right? I mean, if the Syrians bomb the living daylights out of it, they'll be condemned from a height by all. But a whole lot of these terrorists, these are not Syrians, right? Mm. They came from all over the planet, right? And, for example, Turkey was one of the main facilitators of them getting into the place. Israel facilitated them. Saudi and the UAE and Qatar armed them, as did the Americans and the EU armed some of them as well, Mm. right? So, I mean, some of these have come from France, they've come from Germany, they've come from England and other countries, 
in an ideal world, they would be brought sent back to where they came from and they would be dealt with by uh, the, the authorities in each individual country. If there are French citizens, the French state should take responsibility for them and try them and if put them in prison if, if that's what they should be done with them. If they've committed terrible crimes, they should be sentenced uh, and dealt with accordingly. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, Europe is washing its hands. We don't want to know about them. It's a bit like the, the three million Syrian refugees in Turkey. We don't want them to go back to Syria because they'll strengthen Syria and help rebuild it, which the Europeans don't want. They don't want them to come to Europe because we, we've, we're, we're putting up walls and barriers against more refugees coming in. So, are they going to stay in Turkey forever and we're giving the Turks three billion a year to cage them? I mean, where's where's the future? Like, What's the plan? The, um, when I, I've asked that several times in the European Parliament, and I get no answers. It's a huge, it's a huge message out of that because the EU's response to that threat, and we talk about that threat a lot here, and it is real, and we accept that. But their response is to pump billions of European citizens' money into border security. It's introducing laws which are discriminatory, as Mick says, in the likes of France, which target all Muslims as a suspect community, rather than working with these countries Mm. in order to deal with the problem that's there. But of course, those who created uh, ISIS are very happy to have a destabilised Iraq on the borders with Iran to keep Iran and everybody busy while Israel keeps doing uh, what it's doing in the region. It's it's absolutely despicable. But I mean, I think the... um, the moderate nature of the people we met, the, their forgiveness, their savvy on these things was incredibly impressive, wasn't it? I mean, they were just so friendly I and mean, up for it. And we decent. actually had uh, we had eleven meetings uh, in Iraq, and some of them went on for four hours. And you know what? Every single one of them were impressive. They were amazing. Mm. Uh, I was really blown away with them. Um, they were of a real high caliber, every single one of them. Amazing. Yeah. And and people look and they kind of see, and because of sort of, I suppose, some of the different Muslim traditions, like we were in Baghdad, which is quite mixed and secular, but then we spent quite a while in Najaf, which is the big Shia city, the shrine of Imam Ali, and it's a holy city where there's a lot of religious theology in that. So in that city, uh, the women would all wear hijabs and burqas and that, mm. so I kind of had to wear that as well, which is different and people kind of don't really, it's a bit weird for people in the West. You actually get used to it, not <laughs> bad. I, I couldn't get used to it, but well, I thought it was really nice. We went to visit one of the four leading Grand Ayatollahs. Now, these are the people who welcomed the Pope. They are the people who issued the call to Shia supporters to rise up against uh, ISIS. And it was in thanks to their call that that happened. And one of the Ayatollahs, and he was a man, he was 87 years of age and such a lovely gentleman sitting on the floor because that's what they do. They say they're kind of, you know, it's it's a sort of a respect thing, but he he apologised for us having to wear the sort of clothes, which I thought was incredibly sensitive for an elderly man to have the uh, enough sensitivity to realise that it would be uncomfortable for a Western woman to wear those clothes. I thought it was really sweet. Mm. Yeah. yeah, tell us a bit about those. Well, like just what Iraq is like. What's Baghdad like when you land in Baghdad? I think when you say you're in Baghdad, someone back home. 
like what what images we should play the music from the there was about uh, I'd say 15 weddings in one of the hotels one of the nights we were there the music the dancing people in Ireland with confined to their six people at a wedding wouldn't be impressed (laughs) but it was like uh, incredible incredible can you see this legacy of the eight years of American occupation there still or does life just go on while there's still containment devices happening elsewhere like what's what's it like what's life like well listen there is a lot of infrastructure that needs to be rebuilt and you can see a lot of bombed buildings still um but so i mean they are rebuilding there's a good few cranes uh, to be seen uh I, I remember when i was building in dublin we used to count the number of cranes uh, in the sky f- when we would be up on a height because you could see the whole of Dublin from, from, if you're up high enough. And we used to count the cranes uh, mm-hmm. to assess the level of activity. Yeah. And I, I, I was um, I was surprised at uh, just how many cranes uh, were in the sky uh, in Baghdad. And uh, likewise in Najaf. We were in Karbala as well, another religious area. Um, but let, people are getting on with their lives, you know. And obviously, COVID is an issue, um, but we were probably taken aback at the lack of masks because we were wearing masks, obviously. Uh, and um, they were particularly scarce in Najaf. Um, I reckon maybe about one in 10 or 15 might have been wearing a mask in Najaf, and maybe one in four or one in five in Baghdad. Mm. Um um, just how much COVID is happening, I'm not so sure. There hasn't been um, accurate record-keeping record mm. on it. Um, but people seem determined uh, to get on with life and the places were buzzing. Yeah, you know? I mean, what you would strike, and it's amazing how you become so used to it, is the army and the police are everywhere. Yeah. So there are checkpoints literally everywhere um, and moving around in normal times. So there were days when there were lockdowns when we were there as well at the weekends and that where literally nothing was mm. happening and things were really quiet. Everything uh, shut down. So it was kind of contradictory in a, in a COVID sense. Um, but the, the checkpoints mean that traffic is virtually at a standstill around the cities all the time. Like it's absolutely torturous. And you'd have the different army and police and the different militias working with them because they're very much under the umbrella of the state forces. So they're everywhere with tanks, with guns. But actually their demeanour and their interaction with you and with the people is lovely. Like there'd be a young fella on a moped, two young fellas on a moped and the lads would call them in to show the thing. Like in Ireland or in France, in France the police would probably beat them up. Uh, in Ireland, you know, they'd probably get into... So they've a lovely manner in their dealings and all of the state forces we met were really polite with everybody. They were efficient, polite, but that was interesting. There is a lot of poverty. There isn't much work. It's very hard for young people other than getting the state jobs and that. It's pretty hard. So I'd say that is difficult. But um, the weather was nice for them. I mean, in the summer, it gets to 60 degrees where they can't move. So it was kind of around 30. So that was pretty balmy and nice for them. So they really liked it. Um, and yeah, there there is a nice atmosphere. A lot of good. But, yeah. Um, but there's obviously because we are from Europe and we were from the European Parliament um there was a huge emphasis on the desire for much better contact with Europe. They really, really want it. Mm. They, they have they have a different feeling for the Europeans than the Americans. Yeah. They, I mean, they, they, they realise the Americans just come to make money, but culturally and all, 
going back uh, over the years, they feel that there was more healthy ties with the Europeans and they'd like them uh, re-established. Well, and ties and under mm, colonialism, mm, I don't know. I, I know. Listen, it's I, funny, I, I, they were but, saying but, at least the Brits and the French left or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like no, the Americans listen, pillaging I mean, everything. They're incredibly tolerant, yeah. right? Wow. And, and, I mean, uh, you're right. I mean, colonialism uh, played a terrible negative role, generally speaking, everywhere it went. But, they, they were saying as well, right, they talked, an awful lot of people talked about the Pope. The Pope's visit yeah. was an, a 100% success mm. and they loved it. And mm. why did he go, actually? This was a well, while ago now. It was he, probably, he, he, he went yeah. to, uh, out of respect, uh, I think, and I think it was a wonderful thing for the Pope to do. And they were saying that the papal visit, uh, hopefully, they said, is, can be a new beginning. Mm. for contact with Europe. Mm. And uh, they loved the Pope and mm. they all spoke well about it and they all spoke about the need for all the different religions to tolerate each other, to get on with each other. And for example, they were saying uh, the, the, any Muslims that would be living in Europe, uh, whether they like it or not, if they're going to live in a country in Europe, they must obey the laws of that country. But they said, and he says, we've links with, with them. But he says, our link is totally on a religious basis, right? We're, we're not telling them uh, um, to disobey the laws of the country that they're in. Mm. In fact, we would be insisting that they respect them. Yeah. Right? I think one of the reasons why the Pope probably went was, uh, and it's probably a legacy of the time when ISIS and uh, occupied so much of Iraq and Syria, and actually what happened, you know, when ISIS comes, then all minorities like Christians and other infidels, as they'd call them, mm. anybody's head is up for a chopping, really, when these boys come into town. I mean, it's a, a ruthless imposition of religious ideology on everybody, the one way. And obviously these people that are completely opposed to that in the same way as we would be. And the, a lot of the Shias in those countries would have protected I suppose and worked with they were and uh, worked with the Christians you know mm. it's probably why one of the reasons a lot of um, Christians like the Syrian government because under when Assad was you know in government and that the per Christians were allowed to practice their religion yeah. they weren't persecuted in the way yeah. in which uh, you know under an ISIS type regime they are so I think it was partly a kind of a thanks and a, a rebuilding of relationships in the, the harmonious working of the Shia religion with Christians in a way in which so it doesn't get represented It's been this kind of home. new start you're saying but has it put anything into action is there any movement like the EU policy towards Iraq as you're saying yeah, still seems yeah. to be minimal engagement if not nothing or lapdogs to the US. Yeah, um, the the as you that's exactly it. The fact that they're a lapdog to the US is preventing the EU from having constructive, positive relationships with Iraq at the moment. Now, obviously, uh, it would be brilliant if we could help in any way uh, to change that and to improve it. But uh, we were at pains not to make promises because that would be very foolish of us uh, and um, I remember on, on one particular occasion uh, dealing uh, at one of the meetings uh, I said that look uh, it would be completely wrong of us to promise anything because we don't know if we can deliver but we will certainly try and he said back for us he says for us Iraqis to try is everything mm. the rest he says is in the hands of God 
I don't, it, was a, it was a lovely expression. Yeah. Yeah, it was really mm. lovely. I'm just wondering, there's of course obviously a number of challenges um, for Iraqis at the moment. Uh, young Iraqis have very little to hope for as well with the current state of the economy. Mm. Um, ISIS still threatening around as well. Um, what other kind of challenges did you see like for people that living there? Uh, what else is happening for them or... Do you know, is it just this economy that's not moving and they're not able to do much and yeah, the difficulties there? Are... Yeah, I mean, the, the lack of employment um, is a major problem. And they would even, you know the way, for example, um, Ukraine, for example, is a basket case in Europe ever since the Americans and the Europeans organised a, a coup in 2014. The, the, the wheels have fallen off in Ukraine and it's a basket case now. But millions and millions have left Ukraine and have gone to Europe for work. The Iraqis, it's difficult for them to actually leave and go somewhere else it's, at the moment. It's very difficult. So they are dependent on their country. They need their country rebuilt and the needs... Um, normality restored they and they'd, they'd stop at nothing to try and make it happen but they need outside help to make it happen because they're broke they've been their country's been destroyed it's been plundered it's been looted uh, by the west and uh it's they now need our help to rebuild it I think the, pro, the like the issues are different I think the priority for a number of the politicians we met was that the Americans must leave. The Parliament has taken a view and under international law and all things, they are now an occupying force. They accept that they had invited them in before and then they were welcome and they didn't take up arms against them when they'd invited them in. But once the Americans executed al-Muhandis and General Soleimani, the Parliament voted for them to leave and now they're an occupying force. So in that sense, they're fair game under international law. They are a legitimate target and there are groups in Iraq who will engage for the Americans to leave. Now, the Americans aren't present on every street corner. Yeah. Their presence actually is pretty limited, except they have the, the, the air power. They have drone and intelligence surveillance and they can act in the way in which they executed such leading people as they did. They could do that again. So it's not that there's a presence of American troops on the streets yeah. or anything like that. They're very much confined to base. But it's a principal thing that the wishes of the Iraqi parliament would be upheld and that and they would leave. Say, but for the citizens, I don't think that's really a big deal. Yeah. For Like everywhere else, for the Iraqi citizens, they want work, they want decent housing, they want health care. And they can't do that while the stranglehold and the fear of Americans preventing really uh, reinvestment and redevelopment is there. And Europe really should be stepping in there and playing a role in that. Yeah. And as you say, like um, it was over a year ago when this the parliament um, called on all foreign uh, troops to leave the country. So it was really mm. about this thing of reclaiming the sovereignty. So that's kind of the political thing. But then mm. the real social and economic issues on the ground are just the and same ones. And they want to work with everybody in everywhere, do you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, they were even saying that uh, while they don't want the Americans occupying the place, they don't want the Americans telling them what to do, they don't want the Americans controlling their skies, uh, they'd be happy to do business with them. Yeah. Now, the Chinese, interestingly, right, have been uh, eager to do business with them. And the, the, the Chinese have offered them a few different uh, projects. And the Chinese are prepared to invest in the infrastructure there in return for oil. And they're really eager uh, to help. And... Um, there's pressure from the Americans mm. and the Europeans not to engage with the Chinese mm. to help them. Mm. Now, I mean, that's crazy. 
So it's the reason leave, why yeah. the, pre- the prime minister was uh, basically ousted. The last prime minister was because of of the the China deal. But there there will be a deal done with China. But there was interesting examples given of how pressure came on from the Americans to the Dutch. For example, they had sought the power or the, the assistance of Dutch companies in terms of their agriculture and the Dutch state in redeveloping agriculture and the Dutch were interested in doing that. The Americans came in and, and muscled those deal and, and told them to drop it. So, yeah, that's, a, that's actually kind of my last question basically is about US policy now like under Biden, um, new president, I don't know if there's going to be much change there, but it seems like the policy on Iraq is to just leave it there to rot, basically, and not able to get past these massive challenges that it still has and to not let it claim that sovereignty back. Um, I'm just wondering about Biden's policy. It's a bit mad as well because he supported the Iraq um, war very much, so very vocally, and then he's kind of rolling back on that now. Well, But like, you can't really hide I'm, from that. I'm, 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 People need to realize that a huge player in the whole region is Israel. Israel doesn't want Iran to be strong. And destabilizing Iraq, destabilizing Syria, destabilizing Lebanon is a problem for the whole region. And it suits Israel and uh, it prevents things developing in a normal fashion there. And you're right, uh, Biden... Because he is completely, uh, he's, uh, while the Europe is under the thumb of the Americans, right? The Americans seem to be, are completely, uh, at the mercy of the Israelis and they support Israel in, Israel breaks international law every single day of the, the day. year. <laughs> what? It blew up a cargo, Iranian cargo ship the other day. Mm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, Israel and the Americans, sadly, are lawless. They don't respect international law, but, uh, America, uh, has destroyed much of the region, destabilized it uh, at the behest of Israel. And that hasn't stopped and uh, that problem hasn't gone away. Mm. But what people need to realize is that Iran is probably stronger today than mm. it's been in a long, long time. And Iran does have a healthy relationship with Iraq. It has a healthy relationship with Syria. It has a healthy relationship with Lebanon. And Israel sees that as a threat to itself. And what all the talk is about uh, Iran trying to get nuclear. Well, I mean, you could forgive them for wanting to get it, given that Israel have it. And Israel refuses to sign up to any uh, of the nuclear international agreements. They completely ignore them all. Mm. They're one of the few countries that are completely lawless around the nuclear uh uh, rules, whereas Iran has actually been far more compliant with international rules around nuclear in the last ten years than Israel has. But yet, uh, but Iran, uh, because of the, of the JCPOA falling apart when Trump pulled out of it in 2017, and interestingly enough, a few of the Iraqis said at the meetings that were at that the the failure of Europe to stand mm, by the yeah. agreement and to stand by Iran when Trump illegally pulled out of the deal. The failure of Europe exposed Europe's weakness uh, in the the face of US aggression. Mm. Uh, So, I mean, listen, the whole region uh, is still in turmoil. The whole region, the people just want to live. Mm-hmm. They just want to have and uh, a I think they have a really life. good democratic system as well. I mean, the, the new parliament and the new constitution is all post-Saddam. It's relatively new. You know, it's mm. a... 
I suppose democracy, that misused word, is in its infancy. But there are people like the elections. There has to be elections soon, maybe this year, hopefully, uh, depending on COVID and all the rest of it. But they, they, we met a lot of different politicians and they were really, it's a very good system. They're very engaged. They were in the middle of uh, passing their budget when we were there. So there were all night talks about the, the money and where the money was going to come from. We haven't even talked about the Kurds. We, yeah. we met the Kurdish, uh, one of the leaders of one of the Kurdish parties and that as well. But uh, yeah, very interesting and engaged. And their problem is, is that they are the victims of, and the way US and that look at them is they're kind of collateral damage in terms of dealing with Iran. That everybody he wants to see, you know, they're, yeah. they're just there. They'll fight their battles in the territory of Iraq, but it's not about Iraq. It's about prop, uh, positioning for Israel or whatever. It's trying to keep Iran in check. And actually, in the middle of all of that is a sovereign country that just wants to be respected as a sovereign nation and do its own thing and get on with everyone. And that's, that's what we nice. support and we will advocate for. Yeah. So I think we have to give our 10 out of 10 uh, points for Iraq. Is that right? Since Absolutely. We're, since we're giving all the countries the What a place. Their points, so, but, um, uh, I mean, what, what a wonderful people. Oh my God. They're so, they're so, they're, they're yeah. so nice, so kind, so generous. Mm. They're amazing. And you can imagine we're walking down the street and people see Mick. Now, a lot of people, particularly in the Holy City, are all decked out in the the gear, like the the hijabs, the burqas. But a lot of men would wear the the long gowns and that. And here in the middle of it is Goldilocks coming with the big (laughs) blonde head. And you could just see people, kids and all that, that their mouths open. They just go, (gasps) the jaw drops and then the head follows Mick down the street. (laughs) And uh, it was great uh, uh, conversation starter no, with a, a lot we had a great, great crack, crack with yeah, the kids and all it was that such, yeah, yeah. the atmosphere was so good <laughs> it was an unforgettable good. experience yeah, did you feel was. very special then <laughs> I always he did. thought he was the Pope I, like he was he thought <laughs> he was getting some of the attention the Pope got yeah, yeah. you never get that much attention yeah. around here you just get it right in I think <laughs> it was fantastic and we'll return to it and we will engage with people in Ireland and in Europe about trying to follow up on some of the issues the the cultural exchanges the business mm. exchanges and all and, that and well. I should add that uh, that we have actually been working on a, on a on a report um on Iraq mm. and we've got we've got some help in do, doing it uh from a very good man uh who was powerful uh in the region and um we will incorporate uh our visit now in the report and hopefully uh, we should we should have it published uh, within six or eight weeks. So it's a topic we'll return to, and I mean we did. It says this isn't a normal issue. We didn't get to cover France, which was our our, it's, it's our target this week, but it'll be episode. next week. Yeah, yeah. And also we'll have an episode coming up soon on the digital green certificate, which we talked about before. Um, but there's a lot to go into on that, so uh, stay tuned for that. We'll go into this uh, COVID passport. Um, so that's another special episode on the way. So but, as uh, they say in Iraq, Mam Noon, which Mam is Noon, thank everyone, you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mam Noon. Mam Noon. Thanks very much and have a nice day.